Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Institute for Government. Um, my name is Tim Durrant, and I am delighted to be hosting this event talking about WhatsApp in Westminster. Um, obviously, everyone else in Westminster is talking about the Privileges Committee report and uh, Boris Johnson's legacy, but I think it's fair to say that WhatsApp is also a part of his, uh, his legacy in government, so I think we've done quite well in organising this today. Um, later this month, the courts will be hearing the government's judicial review on whether the COVID inquiry should have access to all of uh, ministers' WhatsApps uh, during the early stages of the pandemic. And I think the row between the inquiry and the government has been a really useful reminder of just how widespread WhatsApp is inside government and in Westminster more generally. Um, groups of ministers use it, special advisors and civil servants. They use the app to ask each other questions, share information and relay decisions. And we know as well that MPs and journalists and lobbyists uh, use it to keep in touch, to gossip and to argue their case. Um, so we wanted to think about how much WhatsApp is changing the way politics works, the way government works. Uh, does it mean that key evidence is being lost um, and the government is getting less transparent? Or is it actually just the 2020s version of informal conversations that have always taken place in Parliament and around Westminster? So I'm really delighted by the fantastic panel we have here to talk about all of this. Um, from the far left, my colleague, uh, Dr. Alice Lilly, who wrote a report with me on WhatsApp in government last year. Henry Zeffman, Associate Political Editor of The Times uh, and former Washington editor. Matt Warman, MP, uh, who is the MP, excuse me, for Boston and Skegness, apologies, Matt, and uh, a former Minister of State at the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. And Emily Walsh, who was a special advisor to Vince Cable and is now Senior Counsel at Grayling. So in terms of how this is going to run, I'm going to ask all of my uh, panellists some questions. We'll have a bit of a discussion between us, and then we'll have plenty of time for questions from the audience, both in the room and online. Um, if you are watching online, please do send in questions on Slido. We will um, come to those shortly. And do add your name and organisation if you feel able to. Um, we are also live tweeting from our IFG events account using hashtag IFG WhatsApp. So if you want to join that conversation, please do. Uh, and just to make clear, um, this is all being broadcast live and it is very much on the record. Um, we won't be sending it to the COVID inquiry, though. <laughs> so, uh, Matt, if I could start with you, um, could you tell us how you used WhatsApp in government and what you saw the benefits of it being? Yeah, no, I, so I think it's, it's a really interesting topic, but ultimately I, I'm very much in the camp uh, where of, of your opening remarks of, of people who think that this is fundamentally just a tool that is uh, a new version of an old, uh, some would see it an old issue, uh, some would just see it a necessary part of government. So uh, for instance, uh, there obviously there is uh, famous or infamous Conservative MPs uh, WhatsApp group. There are uh, a whole host of other smaller groups that different uh, caucuses or, or um, uh, within the party might use. In government, of course, um, actually what struck me and going back through my uh, messages uh, from, from when I was in government was that there was a small private office WhatsApp group that was very functional, um, was very sort of, the, when's, when's this meeting, are we running late, all that kind of stuff. Um, and there was very little, actually, direct communication between myself and, and senior civil servants. It was much more, I would like to talk to such and such a DD, let's set them up. And uh, for instance, I was in a meeting back in DCMS uh, yesterday, with one of the directors who I worked really closely with, um, and I thought uh, I will I will send her a WhatsApp message saying it was nice to see you sort of a couple of minutes ago, um, and I didn't have her number because everything went through the private office. So in a way, what struck me about the whole thing is that the way government has has used it is yes, of course, there are occasions when it is uh, is helpful, convenient, sensible to get in touch directly with people, but it is a it is still fundamentally a very structured, formal thing that runs, in my experience, much more over uh, email and, and on paper than perhaps uh, it should. Uh, but the idea that sort of somehow emerged in the media that there was a sort of shadow government running on WhatsApp that uh, usurped the sort of normal processes, I don't think that's I think that's a realistic uh, interpretation of events, and is certainly not uh, my experience. So uh, I hate to be very boring uh, on this, uh, but but. I do think fundamentally uh, WhatsApp has provided uh, some new channels, if, if you can put it, or a new channel, uh, but it hasn't done anything fundamentally different. But one, one thing that I would add, though, is 
I don't think it's necessarily good for government for everyone to have to send messages to their private office or to their senior civil servants or, or whoever, while having one eye on is this going to be on the front page of a newspaper. I, th I think that that is that there is a reason why the Freedom of Information Act preserves a space for policy conversations, um, and I think there is a risk uh, that we end up uh, losing some of the benefits of having a new tool. But of course, it, it requires people to behave responsibly individually, and I hope. Uh, that my experience is, is something that is, is more commonplace, if not completely universal in government. Brilliant, thank you. That's a really helpful overview, um, and I think a lot to get into there. So um, we'll pick up on some of those themes in a bit, but I just want to turn to Emily now. So you were in government until 2015, during the coalition years. I think that was, you know, WhatsApp was around, but perhaps before it got as big as it is now. What was the equivalent at the time? And do you kind of agree with what Matt was saying about there's always been mm. these informal conversations and actually the formal business of government is done elsewhere. So to, to take the first part of your question to begin with, I think, so WhatsApp was created in 2009 and it was bought by Facebook in 2014. And I think that's quite notable because that's when it became free and the free usage of it was quite significant, I think, in terms of its very quick adoption and the ability to make calls as well. It, it really, it kind of took on very quickly. So it was really around in the last year or so that I was in government and I, I sort of checked in with a couple of my former SPAD colleagues uh, ahead of today and, and none of us can really remember using this in any way in a professional manner. It was just starting to be something that we used in a more informal, friendly, sort of sociable thing, but it was definitely not something that, that I think any of us used um, as, as in the way that it's used today. I think what was really um, the kind of the prime areas of, 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 of communication at the time were obviously emails, professional and sometimes personal as well, sometimes accidental, sometimes deliberate, uh, and text message. And I think the, one of the big differences between text message and WhatsApp is the ability to have several people as part of the conversation in WhatsApp that you, you wouldn't necessarily be able to do as easily via text message. And I think that, that has really contributed to its mushrooming. And I think, um, actually, it's lovely to see my, my former SPAD colleague, Giles, in the room today, one of your senior policy fellows here, because when I arrived in the department, one of the very first jobs I was given was to prepare Vince for the Leveson inquiry. And the, uh, and the hearing he was giving on the back of the uh, sky, the sort of failed sky bid. And our wonderful private office were absolutely assiduous at absolutely drumming it into us that we should be very, very careful with the relationships we were having and everything that was put on email. And when our emails were then made public as part of the inquiry, Giles became a sort of overnight hero in the department because he had, you know, very carefully followed that advice and sort of, you know, I think one of my favourite recollections was when he'd said to the Sky lobbyist that, uh, that a, a simple Google search including Vince Cable, B Sky B and Sky should return null results. And at that point, we might have a conversation. And so, you know, we did actually... So the, the private office had performed a fantastic role in mm. terms of helping us understand, but that's because we were in the eye of the storm. Yeah. And I think hopefully we'll, we'll come on to training and practice and all of that in the, in the course of our conversation, but that doesn't necessarily happen. And, and you know, your fantastic report will, uh, you know, has, has definitely laid bare the scale of, of some of the problems. But, um, you know, WhatsApp was not, really, uh, was not really a thing in the coalition government. Thank goodness, dare I say. I, I'm very happy that it wasn't. <laughs> And so, Henry, picking up on, on Emily's point there, so, you know, yeah, WhatsApp wasn't a thing back in the coalition, but emails, personal emails, there have always been these kind of, well, for the last 20 or 30 years, there have always been these kind of tech-based ways of talking about things. How do you think WhatsApp in particular is changing government over the last few years? Well, I, I first covered Westminster in 2016, so a year or so after Emily left. Um, and certainly my recollection is that almost immediately WhatsApp was the primary medium yeah. uh, through which I'd communicate with people in government. Obviously, not now I'm not part of government, but I think, you know, I, I think a lot of what we're discussing is actually just downstream of society, as it were. And I think people in government are, of course, wanting to communicate with each other in the way that they communicate yeah. with everybody, because yeah. that's just instinctive and natural. Um, and so, you know, I think... I'm, I'm sure it has changed government, and uh, or, or at the very least, the sort of means of communication within government. Because if you're communicating with people on the WhatsApp app on your phone, it's a bit annoying to then switch to the email app or the messages app. I know that sounds mundane, but I really think it's true. Mm. Um, 
I mean, I think it probably changed Parliament first. Matt alluded to this. Um, you know, particularly in that sort of really tumultuous post-referendum period, um, it became um, very relevant to journalists, uh, to group MPs into factions in a way that it hadn't been before because those factions cut across political parties in a way that they hadn't for a while um, and or were within political parties. Um, and, you know, helpfully, they all decided to do it for themselves uh, and group themselves into groups saying things like European Research Group members mm -hmm. or Spartans or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, the holy grail then became getting someone in that WhatsApp group to send you screenshots from the, from the group or, um, you know, and, and, it's, and it's, um, it's, you know, it might sound slightly childish, but actually that's a very good way of seeing, of um, shining a bit of sunlight on a discussion that I'm sure would have previously happened in the tea room in a completely unminuted um, unrecorded way. A um, couple of points that I think are, 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 are very important here, though, with my journalist hat on. One is, um, doesn't, though I think people do this because it's how they communicate, I don't think um, it's universal. I was in, as you mentioned, I, was, I covered the States for a bit. And for whatever reason, people in America, I don't just mean in government, people in America barely use WhatsApp. Right. Um, and therefore, everybody I communicated with in government there um, it would happen via email. And my understanding is that almost all the internal communications would happen via email, if not via some more secure, but nevertheless publicly uh, recorded messaging app. Mm. Um, and so, um, you know, I don't believe that the record would show that the UK government's uh, um, processes have been sort of sped up so much faster than America's that we therefore have a much better record of how to run things or whatever. Perhaps there's you know, discussion to be had there. But I think you know, it's interesting. Does, does that suggest that WhatsApp, while convenient, might not actually be essential to making government run faster, including during a pandemic? Though obviously mm. America's record during the pandemic is mixed. Mm. Um, the other thing that I really think is relevant to this gets back to my point about um, this just being downstream of how we interact in society um, is that, I don't know if you, some of you feel the same. I, you know, I have colleagues who are only just a little bit younger than me who are very wary of using the phone. Uh, and I think, and I'm sure this is true in the civil service, and I'm sure this is therefore true in government more broadly, you know, fewer workplace conversations, I'm told from my friends and people I know in all sorts of uh, sectors and industries, happen on the phone now. People mm. want to message instantly, uh, be that Gchat or Slack, which is very you know, regularly used in the workplace. Mm. Um, so I do think you know, it's not so much WhatsApp changing government, it's um, the immediacy of society and communications. Yeah. Mm -hmm changing society and government, therefore, for being part of that, I think, yeah. is my long-winded answer to your question. No, I think it's a really important point, because right? as you say, it's easy to focus attention on WhatsApp because it is so widespread in Westminster, and people like talking about it, and there are always leaks and you know, screenshots making their ways into, into the news, or indeed former secretaries of state handing over their entire WhatsApp history to a journalist, <laughs> which you know, is, is quite fun for those of us outside. But um, it's not the only thing, is it? Right. Yeah. Um, okay, so Alice, just to kind of reflect on, on our work on this. So we looked at this stuff last year. How does what we've just heard ref kind of compare with what we wrote about last year? And how do you think things have changed since we wrote our report? Yeah, so I think certainly uh, a lot of the points that have already been made very much reflect what we said, which is always nice. Um, I think we, we very much found quite early on that, you know, as we've talked about, this is a kind of new manifestation of a much older issue. So there has always been informality yeah. in government's decision-making. Mm -hmm. The difference, though, with WhatsApp, as, as Henry picked up on, is that actually where these conversations might previously have taken place in kind of smoke-filled rooms or, you know, the division lobbies in Parliament, and there was no written record of them whatsoever, actually now there is a written record, which poses a whole new set of questions about how that is captured and, and how it is used. Um, I think as well, generally what we found, and so we went out and put, you know, FOI requests to different departments about what guidance do they have for ministers, officials, SPADs, about how to use WhatsApp. Um, and generally the picture we got, I think, was that there is quite a lot of inconsistency uh, across government. Um, and it seems to be the case that really the sort of use of WhatsApp has exploded so quickly, not just in government, but in, in broader society as well, that sort of thinking uh, and processes simply have not actually kept up with the speed at which these kinds of new technologies are being used. 
So while some departments already have guidance that they issue to new members of staff about how these things should be used, about how messages should be put into sort of permanent systems, other departments didn't have that. You know, some departments said, actually, we require you to use government phones for government business. Other departments didn't have that. And so there was a kind of real inconsistency. I think as well the, the final point that it's, it's worth um, reflecting on is the fact that actually the use of WhatsApp, uh, storage of messages um, and all the sort of ramifications for accountability and for transparency are actually already covered by existing legislation, by existing principles. It's not actually that there is a particular need for new legislation, it's more a case that the, the reality of how those principles should actually be applied is something that there needs to be a bit more consistency about. Um, so earlier this year, uh, we did see the government actually uh, publish some new kind of updated guidance uh, about the use of WhatsApp, uh, which I think has been really kind of quite welcome. But at the same time, that is just guidance. And there is also a question about ensuring that that guidance is actually practically applied and, and enforced. And, you know, obviously the jury is, is still out on, on how that process is going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so I want to pick up some of the things that people have already raised. So Matt, you talked about uh, when you were using WhatsApp in government, you weren't really using it for sort of actual kind of substantive conversations with, with senior civil servants, it was more the kind of practical side of things. Do you think, because some of the, the releases we have seen suggest that at least during the pandemic, which obviously was a kind of particularly difficult circumstance, there were more substantive kind of policy conversations happening in these WhatsApp groups, you know, that the Prime Minister um, at the time and his senior advisors were part of. Do you think there are risks of those, uh, of, of, or do you think there are problems of those meteor discussions happening on WhatsApp as opposed to other forums, whether it's email or written advice or meetings? I, I think yes is the short answer. My my experience of, and most of my time in, in government was during the pandemic. Um, it was it was very sort of can we jump on a Zoom or a Google Meet, um, as DCMS insisted on using, um, uh, to talk about stuff rather than doing substantive things uh, over uh, over uh, WhatsApp. But clearly there were some exceptions to that and clearly there were some people at a much higher level than, than I was that were obviously uh, having to deal with much more rapid things in in, uh, in much more uh, sort of emergency circumstances so so I, I think it that, that we need to sort of separate if you like what are the things that government did in extremis when sometimes that was the only option because obviously people might have been isolating people would have been in different locations all of that decision still needed to be made made from what's the sort of broader pattern uh, that is that is outside those extreme situations of the pandemic. And I think, if anything, um, where the two come together is simply that the pendulum swung uh, somewhat too far uh, in some places, and the reaction has rightly been to say, okay, what is the right place for a technology that emerged before there were guidelines and, and, and all of that, as, as Alice sort of said. On the other hand, I do think the idea that you can come up with guidelines that says only ever that say only ever discuss work stuff on your government phone and do not even think about mentioning anything related to work on your personal phone is is wishful thinking to think that that would hold forever. Um, because obviously uh, journalists would not message you on the phone that they think, that, that they think is going to get uh, potentially uh, it might emerge into the light of day. So I, th I just think people have to be practical about what that guidance looks like. And ultimately it comes down to individual behaviour, sort of focusing on the, the technology is to miss the point, is if people want to uh, find ways round, uh, there are endless technological ways of doing it, that doesn't make it acceptable to do so in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Emily? Yes, there's a lot there um, to unpack. I mean, three points, really. The, the first one, picking up on something that Alice said, is around the access to information. I think what you were saying about messages being stored, etc., and totally agree. I don't think we need any new, um, any new legislation. What we need is, is better guidance, better use from it, and potentially better technology, and I'll, I'll come on to that. But I think in terms of access to information, I mean, my, my experience in government of the ability of the government's infrastructure to be able to store, access, recall was not exact. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's been a, a while since I've left. I'm sure there've been some upgrades, but um, you know, I saw it even through FOI requests that came through where 
I would look at the, the, the information that had been pulled through by civil servants and thinking, really, is this it? You know, I just don't think we are not, government is not equipped in the way that big tech companies are with state-of-the-art technology because it's all down to money and where we spend our public funds. So um, the other thing also I think is about security. And I think this is actually, this in my view goes really to the heart of the, of the debate around WhatsApp is that yes, WhatsApp ultimately is a, is a meta product. And whilst WhatsApp is end-to-end -end encrypted, what I think is not very well known in the broader world is that WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook are all part of a closed loop ecosystem. So all these applications talk to one another. And whilst, yes, they have end-to-end -end encryption, they are susceptible to scams. And you see that quite a lot. And, you know, but also it's ultimately Meta is an advertising platform who, that exists mainly to make money. And is this really the most appropriate tool that a government should be using? You look at co uh, corporates who would, um, and again, I'm, I'm not, I think that it's very different from the way government is wrong, but nevertheless, in a corporate, you would have a chief information officer, you'd have a chief security officer that would look in depth at the technology and the applications that we use to communicate, and it doesn't really feel that government has that. Um, I also think to the point you were making, uh, secondly, is about guidance and training. I mean, even the inconsistency reading your report with which the government department, some didn't even, some came back and said, this is outside the scope for an FOI. Some, some didn't come back at all. Uh, you know, you don't even get consistency in the responses. And then within the departments, there's huge inconsistency in the guidance and, and all of that. I think that also goes to the heart of a, a real issue in terms of the disconnect between um, the way that government as a whole functions coherently. They're very good at vertical rules, but not functioning as a whole body across various departments. And also the fact, the difference between the rules, I think, that political people, ministers, spads, and civil servants are subjected to. And even though on paper they're meant to be the same, I don't think I ever saw anyone from HR in the almost four years I was in government. I never received any training. I never received any form of guidance. Um, you know, again, when you when you go into a big corporate, that's one of the first things you have is guidance about, um, you know, data breach, cybersecurity, bribery act, etc. That just doesn't happen in government. And lastly, I think um, you know to go back to some of the points that that Matt made as well about. I totally agree that I do think that WhatsApp is fundamentally a modern day evolution of the kind of, t of conversations that, that were always there. But I think the question we should be asking is why? Why are we using WhatsApp as much? And I think, firstly, it's because I think unless you, you've experienced the heart of government and the pace at which things work, it's very difficult to sort of understand why WhatsApp is just so useful because you need the immediacy, the volume of work that you have to get through. WhatsApp really adapts very well to those quick responses that we've been talking about. And I think one of the things that a conversation that we should be having really is, is how can government itself look at the way that it processes information and makes decisions because in my view government needs a it, it doesn't just need some little rules and regulations and sticking plasters around guidance around whatsapp use it needs a proper systems upgrade about how it, it allows decisions to be made in the modern world using modern technology that is uh, aligned to the pace at which government functions so, so whatsapp is is a symptom of the wider problems rather absolutely. Than, yeah 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 no absolutely um i think let's come back to those bigger picture questions but i want to pick up on something you talked about earlier in terms of the access to information and henry i was wondering if you think does whatsapp actually make journalism political journalism in particular perhaps easier in that there's lots of written evidence and things you can write stories about well the, i mean yes is the short answer to your question i think it does make it easier um it certainly speeds it up a lot yeah which actually in a sort of overarching sense might make it harder, certainly harder to see the wood for the trees, harder to see overarching themes because you're actually just, you know, very excited with this particular nugget that someone has sent you. Yeah. But like, that feeds into broader stuff about the 24-7 news cycle and 24-7 life, which I'm sure WhatsApp is also a symptom of, as well as catalyzing. Um, it, it makes it easier in some respects. Um, you know, it is easier to communicate with people who are in government and are very busy, right? Because they don't need to find five minutes to call you. And often the problem with people in Whitehall to me seems to be when they 
do find five minutes to call you, they find it very hard to find, find it possible to call you from somewhere with Signal, which um, <laughs> seems like Signal, not the messaging app, Signal, phone signal <laughs> uh, which um, seems like a problem that Whitehall might need to sort, but whatever. Maybe that's just the excuses they give me. Um, uh, but look, of course, it's, you know, that I have dozens of conversations a day on WhatsApp with people who might say something like, oh, in a meeting, bit busy, can't speak on the phone, but if you've you know, got a quick question, send it over now. Mm. Um, so yes, I think that makes that element of it easier. In another sense, I think it makes it harder for the transparency reasons we were just yeah. talking about. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, as you've all been saying, and I agree, I don't think that is about WhatsApp the medium. I think that is about Whitehall's approach to FOI laws, which yeah. exist on the statute book and are pretty clear and, uh, frankly, think aren't followed yeah. uh, in large parts of Whitehall. And, and that I think that's a very bad thing because it's, it's a law which puts compulsions on uh, information release that... Um, and the, 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 you know, that the FOI officers who routinely say no to our narrow requests are obligated to follow. Yeah. But I think that's not to do with, you know, that, that's the same when I make a request to do with documents as it is mm. uh, to do with WhatsApp. So I think that's a broader question for a much longer debate yeah. uh, on that subject. Absolutely. Um, and, but uh, Alice, I'll come to you in a second. Mm. But um, Matt, I want to ask on that specific point, was there ever a time, uh, Matt, that you remember being asked because of an FOI request that had come in to look into your WhatsApp, is that, or, or do you think the department was set up to do that? Um, no, but for instance, uh, I can definitely think of uh, inquiries that were run via the cabinet office where my private office said to me, uh, can you tell us whether uh, an individual has got in touch with you by any means and they were they were sort of I can't remember if it was explicitly or implicitly but I certainly considered it to include WhatsApp because otherwise sort of what's the point in asking the question kind of thing um so so the department was certainly alive to that being an, an obvious channel and from the fact that they asked the question, I presume that uh, they sort of thought that they would have had uh, a right to see it because it clearly would have been part of a, a live uh, government issue. But um, I don't, if I'm honest, I don't know what the the legal status of any of that. If I'd have said, well, yes, I have, but I don't want to show it to you. I mean, that, that's, that's not an argument that anyone ever wants to be having. Um, so I suspect there are bits of that that uh, certainly need some tidying up when it comes to, as Henry says, the sort of interaction with sort of established FOI precedents versus sort of loopholes that have been created by new um, and different bits of technology. That makes sense. Okay, so Alice, I want to ask about security. So Emily yeah. mentioned it a little bit already, but I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what we found in our report last year on the security concerns or not around WhatsApp. Yeah, so it's interesting. And, and whenever we kind of talk about this report, it's actually one of the first things that people want to know is, you know, security. In some ways, that was less of a focus because actually among the people that we spoke to, there was not a huge level of concern uh, about the use of WhatsApp and kind of security. I think where perhaps the element of concern does come in, and, and we've touched on it already, is more about the fact that um, when you're using sort of non-corporate communications, as, as government terms them, so things like WhatsApp, Signal, whatever it might be, you are using products that are not controlled by government, and the functionality of those products is not controlled by government, which means that there is always a certain lack of control that you have. Um, and so, for example, if you're using a messaging app that is end-to-end -end encrypted and that also offers you know, the opportunity for messages to disappear, that opportunity is there whether the government likes it you know, or not. So there's, there's kind of a, a lack of control. And I think that's perhaps where sort of some of those security issues kind of came out. It's, it's less necessarily about actual security in the kind of conventional sense. Um, it's more about the kinds of functionality and, and who is actually in control of that. I suppose the, the other thing that came out uh, perhaps more strongly was more about privacy. Um, and Henry, I think you alluded to this already. If you are in you know, a WhatsApp group, particularly these big ones like the ERG ones, where you've got sort of 60, 70 people and a screenshot of the chat gets leaked, it's not always going to be obvious to you who's kind of leaked that. Uh, and that's something that you have to live with. Whereas perhaps when you've got an email chain that tends to be a bit limited, it's a little bit you know, more easy to do those things. And, and you never know what people on your group chat might be doing. So I think there's a real kind of um, privacy implication. And also, as I say, it's it's 
the fact that you are essentially using apps that are controlled by people who are not government. Uh, and, you know, it's a separate issue, but we've seen recently with Twitter how changes within a private company can massively affect what these products look like and how they can be used. Uh, and there's nothing that anyone can really do to control that. Yeah. And on that privacy slash leaking point, I think it's also fair to say, right, some of the messages that do get screenshotted and leaked are put in the group in order to be leaked. You know, yes. there's a kind of performative yes. angle to yes. WhatsApp, right? Because chances are that message might get out there. Um, okay, I want to open it up to audience questions. So we have a roving mic, and for those in the room, I will take uh, questions in a batch of three, perhaps, if there are uh, any questions. So gentlemen here, and people online, we will have a look at questions. Uh, James Kidner, formerly of the Foreign Office, now in the much more foreign world of technology. Um, riveting conversation, and, and uh, I want to applaud Emily's point in that sort of second round of discussion, that, that fundamentally this has been a bit of a tactical discussion about the particular platforms we're using. The broader strategic issue is how do we want government to function? And I'm struck, having been in government, the the frustrations that everyone wants good policy making and in most languages around the world policy making and politics is the same word we don't we acknowledge there's a difference in this country but there isn't in many cultures and if we want good policy making we need to remind ourselves of bismarck's dictum that like making sausages it's an ugly business I think, picking up that last point about deletion of, of apps, if we're going to be using these latest technologies, whatever they are, to allow that free discourse that used to be just the spoken word and they're not lost into the air, isn't auto-deletion of all these things probably in the public's best interest so that we can continue to have these messy discussions going on behind the scenes, enabling more imaginative policy making, bolder initiatives, rather than everyone constantly with an eye to the fact that they're going to get caught out for having been a little bolder than seemed wise in the morning? Brilliant. Thank you. A nice provocative question. Um, other people, lady at the front here. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm Fazan Hussain. Um, excuse me if the question's naive. I'm, I'm not involved in politics at all. I'm an East End GP, but I'm just thinking about uh, the COVID period and how much health, where obviously confidentiality is paramount, uh, used WhatsApp groups and, and how I'm concerned that... Um, doesn't have to be WhatsApp, but I'm concerned about restricting, really to the, the last point, the creativity that is required in thinking. And actually, if we are a democracy, do we as the public need to perhaps sometimes forgive our political leaders to think that actually sometimes it will be messy. Certainly when we were thinking about COVID, we're not allowed to put obviously any patient confidentiality details on WhatsApp, but we could not have done the COVID vaccine program, which I was very um, involved in with NHS England's primary care department. We just couldn't have done it without WhatsApp groups involving 200, 300 people. Um, and that has changed the way I work. And I, I think it, it's a different thing. Uh, but when they were verbal conversations, they weren't picked up by journalists. Do, do we want a more um, open and forgiving culture between our public, our journalists and our leaders? Brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, any more questions in the room? I mean, two quite, quite chunky ones there. So, uh, yeah, Henry, do you want to come in first? I mean, just both, both really interesting questions. I think underlying both of your questions, though, is an assumption that the conversations happening on WhatsApp are conversations that formerly happened out loud. And if they are conversations that formally happened out loud, then fine. Uh, I think you, you know, your, your arguments for auto-deletion from that are fine. But if they were formally conversations that happened uh, in circulated minutes or in meetings with minutes or in memos or even on email, uh, then actually I don't think auto-deletion, um, uh, as you put it, James, I think, um, you know, is the only way to, to um, maintain that creativity or encourage that creativity. Um, and, and we've mentioned the Freedom of Information Act a bit. Another piece of legislation is the Public Records Act, um, which requires that policy-making uh, conversations are retained, and not just for freedom of information, but for ultimate release to the public in 30 years' time. So, um, and that intersects with another feature of not just WhatsApp, but various messaging apps that we haven't talked about, which is automatically disappearing messages, mm. which means that you know, not only is there 
are you then, um, uh, you know, you're not, you're not just saying that further down the track, as you are with WhatsApp, further down the track, you might have a discussion about whether this stuff needs to be recorded. You are ruling out the possibility of anyone even, you know, it's the ultimate unknown unknown. Um, and, um, you know, I think the government, well, the, the government guidance, the Cabinet Office guidance that, that we've discussed that came out earlier this year only alluded very briefly to what is actually one of the more and more common uh, uses of WhatsApp in, yeah. in government, as far as I can tell, i.e. disappearing messages. And I think it said something like, they might be useful to, to tidy up your WhatsApp inbox. Mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty sure that's not why so many ministers that I message have disappearing messages turned <laughs> on, to be frank. Uh, and I think they probably need some firmer guidance, if not instructions, uh, on how that feature's use um, might inter intersect with the uh, various legislative requirements upon them. Absolutely. Um, Matt, do you think we need to be more forgiving of our political leaders? Um, always, surely. Um, no, I, I think, look, to, to be serious, I think there is a fundamental question that, that Henry alludes to is if WhatsApp has changed the, the conversation fundamentally, if it's allowing different conclusions to be reached in a way that uh, eludes good, uh, well-intended legislation, preserved records or whatever, then that, that's obviously a, a very different question. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I see a lot of evidence... Uh, that it is, if I'm honest. I think uh, it is definitely the case that those uh, conversations that used to happen uh, in corridors now to some extent happen uh, on WhatsApp. It is definitely the case that the, I'd noted to, to, from my own perspective, the One Nation Caucus with its WhatsApp group of 96 members and all that, which I think is the biggest in the party, but that's just a, an aside, um, it is, I think, to that sort of thing. Yeah, it was very hard to have a sort of constant ongoing conversation with 96 people all in the same room that that is different but actually 99% of the time it reach it reaches a conclusion of we will discuss this at our next meeting because it hasn't yet uh, usurped that kind of stuff um, just on the privacy point by the way um my my wife's doctor she was she uh, spent a lot of time training in hospital wards that sort of thing um because of the imperfections of some of the uh, uh, ways of communicating amongst medics um quite often a ward will set up a whatsapp group for it, for for its own staff. Now that is a, and, and this is I'm not sort of uh, producing any revelations. This is sort of widely discussed as a problem, but uh, that will have genuinely confidential patient information some of the time because it's the best way to get things done quickly. That is a huge uh, GDPR problem. It's a huge GMC problem. Blah, blah blah. But it's people working at their way round an otherwise imperfect system, and the technology hasn't yet caught up with the processes. Um, uh, that's I think that I think in some ways there are obviously big pressing problems in government thanks to whatsapp um but there are some much bigger much more real problems uh in in other sectors as well and we shouldn't ignore uh, those and, and i suppose that comes back to the point that we shouldn't imagine that government's use of whatsapp is in any sense uh, that different from a whole load of other what you might think of as regulated sectors absolutely um thank you very much um emily can i come to your reflections on either yeah, of the questions absolutely. i mean just to, to start with the the first question from the gentleman about i mean does anything ever get deleted these days <laughs> no i mean i when i came into government one of the very first things i did was commit facebook suicide because i, I there were too many compromising pictures of my pre-spad life and i thought i never you know being a, a woman liberal democrat i was a clear target for the mail on sunday and you should never be this story as a spad so and you know still now eight, 10 years on, I still keep getting messages from Facebook telling me that I've got a friend request or whatever, even though I, you know, I'm pretty sure I've deactivated that account. So I, I'm not sure whether you, you know, anything really ever is deleted these days. Um, but I think that the, the key point is also about, is about training, um, because you were talking about the sort of hubris of, of, you know, that exists in politics. And, and actually, I think for some of it, it's very, you know, if you've experienced it, you understand you are really sort of caught up in this, this sort of whirlwind of, of, of sort of power and, and the immediacy of, of, you know, taking decisions. And so it's very easy to forget some of these things like, oh, well, I'm not going to put this on email because it could leak. You know, you're just sort of caught up in, in, in the immediacy of things. And I think that's why, to go back to my point earlier around Levison, is that... Um, the context, if you have been in a department where something like this has happened, 
that really does serve as a precedent that gives you a sort of sense of foreboding and you're perhaps, I'd suggest, a bit more likely not to do that. But I do think, in addition to the message, the messenger is really important. And we were talking in the green room before this that I think one of the things that, um, that really stood out to me was um, having not necessarily had any, any sort of training, as I, as I mentioned, about any of these sort of formalities in government, but when we're, whenever we visited a foreign government, particularly one that had high counter-espionage risks, we were always briefed by the security services. And I can assure you, we took that briefing very, very seriously. It was quite exciting, actually, as well. <laughs> and, so, um, and so, actually, if you were, you know, I think the messenger of these, these guidelines m matters as much as the message. And, and, he, and he also, you know, um, just to give you a little anecdote, that uh, halfway through the coalition, you may remember the WikiLeaks that had happened. And Vince took it upon himself to praise The Guardian for their, their bravery in reporting the WikiLeaks uh, that were disclosing huge state secrets, international security secrets. And I was pulled aside by a, a security official um, who I thought was actually somebody very different working in the department, who said to me, look, you need to stop saying this because this is actually putting our security at risk. And, you know, again, the messenger had a, had a real impact. So I do think we need to, we need to look at, at, at also who delivers some of this advice for, for political and, and official um, civil servants. Absolutely. Um, Alice, do you have any sort of other reflections on, on the comments? And I think, yeah, something I was going to add and something which I think came across in, in both questions. Um, yes, this idea of actually ensuring that there is still some space for kind of creativity uh, in decision making, that there is still some space for, uh, as you kind of talked about it, the, the messiness. Those things I think are important. And I think what's what's perhaps useful then is to think about this in terms of the different types of messages and the different ways in what's which WhatsApp is used. And certainly our research found that obviously, you know, a, a chat between ministers, spads and officials, it could theoretically move from somebody saying, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm late for this meeting, to I'm having childcare issues, to uh, actually making a kind of substantive decision. And obviously not all of those things are necessarily in the kind of public interest in, you know, in, in the future. Um, I think for us, that's where we kind of very much came down on the side of actually, if there are substantive decisions that are being made on government business, WhatsApp is, is not an ideal forum for those things. But also, it is really important that those things are preserved because ultimately, we all need to be able to trace how decisions have actually been made, what evidence has fed through into those things. Um, who was involved in those decisions, what they were kind of thinking about. So it is one of the challenges, I think, uh, with WhatsApp and other platforms like this, is the fact that those kinds of conversations can blur, you know, between people even potentially having a bit of a joke on a group where they are also kind of making decisions. And I think for us, that was where actually ensuring that there is some kind of um, gap between those two things and how those two things are treated and how those records are stored uh, is really important. Although for some of the reasons that Matt set out earlier, there is always going to be a bit of a blur and a bit of an overlap. You're never going to you know, perfectly be able to say you can only use your, your government phone for government business and your personal phone for everything else. Things will always bleed mm. between the two. But at least starting with that approach, I think, is, is the right way forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to come to questions in the room again. It's shortly, but I just want to bring in some people from online. So there's a lot of discussion about uh, transparency and kind of record keeping, which I think you know a lot of what we have covered. But there's general agreement that uh, transparency is important, record keeping is important, and people talking about um, what's the difference between WhatsApp and email. FOI requests have been granted for policy decisions in email, so surely they should be for WhatsApps as well. So again, sort of similar similar things here. Um, I think. Perhaps one of the, the most interesting questions is um, from, uh, and apologies, I'm, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, but so Dr. Lungile Perfetsile, sorry again, but they are saying if WhatsApp is used extensively as it is, how can government get hold of the information that leaves with users who leave the service, leave, leave government? I think this is a really important point, and we've seen this in the inquiry, right? You know, Matt 
Hancock was using his personal phone as Secretary of State for Health, Boris Johnson was using his personal phone as Prime Minister. Boris Johnson was told by the security services to turn his phone off because the number had been on the internet for 15 years. <laughs> and, uh, but he still had that phone, which, you know, luckily he kept it, but it's, it, it means that the, the kind of gift of um, disclosure is, is in the hands of the individual rather than the government. Is that a problem? I mean, Matt, what are your views, I guess, sort of personally and, and kind of politically? Um, so I think we, we shouldn't overstate this in the sense that the gift of disclosure has always been to some extent within the hands of the individual. And that's why people write memoirs after they leave government. Right. So, so, so it's not fundamentally a shift, but the volume makes it makes it very different in lots of ways, I think. And, and I think the, the problems are right primarily very practical, if that makes sense. So so I don't know what the solution to the, the problem that Alice sort of outlined is. In that blurry conversation between me and someone else that ranges from what's the line to take on this through to where are we having dinner through to sorry, I can't make it because such and such a terrible personal thing has happened. Uh, who is it that I uh, upload all that stuff to? Um, and, and they then run through it and say, oh, that is, uh, to use the phrase, unambiguously irrelevant. Um, and that bit is definitely something that should form a part of some kind of uh, archive. I think there isn't obviously a, a way of triaging that. Uh, what, I, what I do think is that some, some people have suggested that there might be a technology solution to this, if you see what I mean, which is a sort of if everything is uploaded into a metaphorical black box and is, is searchable but not browsable, is that a decent halfway house i think possibly not but it might be better than where, than where than, than where we are now i think people would be very reluctant nonetheless to upload anything to it because uh, it, there there is a really important line of uh, fundamental per, fundamentally some personal privacy and some place for those creative policy conversations as well um i do think i guess on one level that one one way that we can be better at this is for government to take a pragmatic approach to, for instance, FOI requests. I remember when I was the, the minister that was occasionally asked to sign off, do you, do you agree with us that this is exempt from, from an FOI uh, request? Sort of as a, coming at it with a sort of former journalist perspective, my, my overwhelming feeling often was uh, this is really boring. There is no reason not to release this. This thing that you have identified as sort of fundamentally needing to be preserved. Actually, there's six lines where I agree that it it should be redacted. The 25 pages where you're saying you sort of we, we need we need to lose all this. That was just an example of uh, civil servants taking what I think was a they made a legitimate suggestion, but there was a more nuanced version that allowed you to sort of release significantly more. Now, all that would practically do is mean that there was a lot of focus on the six sentences, so to speak, rather than the 25 pages. But if government repeatedly comes back and says there's a lot here and you're not having any of it, I think that undermines faith in the system and, and I felt I did feel like there must be uh, a better way through than simply saying no in a slightly larger scale than it needed to be. Brilliant. Um, Emily, what about when you left government? Do you remember having any kind of debrief on the information you no, were taking with you? Or? No, absolutely no? nothing. Um, I mean, honestly, it's astounding if I think back to, you know, uh, I think the only, the, the only sort of relationship I had was was around a COBRA and the appointment, the job that I took on after that and about whether or not I, it was a conflict with information, privileged information I'd acquired in government. But there was absolutely nothing. I mean, again, WhatsApp was not such a problem then. So, you know, things would be different now, to be fair. But no, absolutely not. And I think a lot of the points that, that Matt raises are, are absolutely key. And I think there's a big, big debate to be had around the, the sort of public and private element of, of some of these conversations. And also not just about the, the, the information that's boring, but frankly, just information that is personal, mm. that, you know, might, might reveal a, a health condition of a, of, of a child, of a minister that has no public value um, other than it, but it's very personal and, and perhaps sharing something with officials because obviously they need to know these things. But I think that you know we are equipped today with incredible technology. I mean, AI is meant to be cleverer than Einstein already now. 
in terms of, of its power of, of an ability, why aren't we using, this goes back to my point earlier, that we need to be having a systems upgrade of, of, of how the, the information, the technology that government uses, and, and also the, the contractors, the, the might, it's very possible to have apps or devices that are built specifically for government. Government is important and prestigious enough that they should be able to have some of these conversations and tender for this kind of, um, this kind of technology. Anything to add on the point about leaving government? Um, I was actually just going to add something on the, the sort of point about scale that, mm. that Matt and Emily have both talked about. And it, I think that is one of the ways in which, although, yes, WhatsApp is this new manifestation of an old problem, there is still a difference. You know, theoretically, the number of messages that could be being given over for record keeping are into the tens of thousands. Mm. So that raises one massive question. And another question uh, as well that is raised is the type of thing that is being stored. And I don't necessarily just mean the type of message in terms of its content, but also when you're using WhatsApp, people are using photos, they are using GIFs, they are using emoji, they are sharing links. So there is also a deeply practical question. This may be the first time emoji has ever been referred to on the IFC stage. Um, but there is a sort of deeply practical question about actually how do you store those things? Yeah. And actually, how are they interpreted uh, in yeah. the future by mm. historians? Does a, yeah. a minister responding with a thumbs up emoji <laughs> to something indicate ministerial sign off yeah. or not, you know? Um, so there, there are real kind of questions, I think, of, of scale, but also some of the really nitty gritty practical stuff that, that need to be worked out. Um, it reminds me, so earlier this week, or potentially last week, the information commissioner was in front of the um, Public Affairs and Constru uh, Public Administration Constitutional Affairs Committee, and he was asked about WhatsApp, and they talked about voice notes. And he was clear that a voice note is still a record, and it should be kept if it's relevant. So yeah, it's exactly this. You know, it's not just the written word, as you say. Uh, should we do another round of questions in the room? So uh, Lauren has uh, two of my colleagues. Fantastic. <laughs> Sorry, colleague. Um, uh, just one comment, and then one question. Um, comment is, I think we overestimate the quality of minutes as uh, important <laughs> insights into how decisions are really made. Uh, anyone, you know, I have colleagues here who have worked in the Cabinet Office, I mean, the art of writing minutes of meetings is to ensure that the sort of interesting parts aren't there while you still sort of tell people what's going on. But I wanted to ask a slightly different question. We talk a lot about the sort of storage issue and things like that, but do we think that use of WhatsApp uh, is changing the way in which government decisions are made themselves? Is it leading, and maybe some of the stuff from the COVID inquiry is suggesting, to a more casual approach to decision-making than we had before, uh, which in some ways is more important for quality of government than whether in 25 years' time we can bounce into some archive and read inappropriate messaging? Thank you, Jill. And Giles. Thank you. Um, can I just make, it's mostly an observation that several undoubted facts for me is that over the last 50 years, government has become way less efficient. It does things much more slowly. It takes much longer to do things. It's much less decisive. Just look at building and passing laws. And also the volume of communication within government, without government, between other people absolutely exploded over that time. And it's exploded since Emily and I were there working for Vince. Um, which leads, leads me to a third observation, which is these two are connected, and if I was trying to run a department absolutely focused on delivery and getting something done over a two or three year period that I might expect, I would ban WhatsApp or anything like that, not just because of the accountability or governance or transparency, but because it's an enormous waste of time. I mean, my first pamphlet for the Institute for Government back in 2014 was that had a long complaint about the number of different people trying to contact a SPAD every day from all the different stakeholders and so forth. And it, it just adds to your inbox. So for sheer government uh, efficiency reasons, shouldn't we just be saying, can we just get a bit more analog in government? Because it does not help government efficiency one little bit. It just adds to your enormous to-do list that is already too big in government. Brilliant. Another provocative question, uh, which I like. Any, any more questions in the room? Go on, please. Sorry. See, seeing as I was touching the microphone, I thought I'd jump in. <laughs> Um, yeah, Simon from the Nuffield Trust here. Um, just, I mean, Henry's um, point about uh, sorts of communications evolving naturally and actually uh, people using WhatsApp uh, downstream, if you like, or in wider society, it seems 
that actually it may be more efficient for government to embrace these sort of moves rather than fight against them. Um, and then linking on to your point, um, Emily, about um, AI, actually internally as a communications team where I work, we've been talking about how actually we may might embrace uh, chat GBT, uh, GPT. Um, as this is something that's clearly growing, it's something that's going to be used. So I wondered, in terms of government using that tool, um, can you see the parallels with how quickly WhatsApp sort of mushroomed, and what lessons can we learn from that for the adoption, most likely adoption of using uh, these kind of tools in, in the government as well? Brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, lots of really interesting, interesting ones there. I wonder, um, Matt, if I could ask you first about do you think WhatsApp is actually changing the way decisions are made? Um, Jill's question about uh, does it lead to a different process now? Yeah, I think there is a temptation to just sort of think that faster is better and, and, and instant messaging is like the, the clue is in the name kind of thing. And it sort of, uh, I suspect in some ways, promotes a sense that instant decision making is, is also a reasonable expectation. I, I think, on the other hand, ultimately, that just comes down to the judgment of the people involved, right? That, that it, it is obvious that a decision you've taken instantly, uh, it, without looking at all the facts and all of that, is, is not necessarily going to be the best one. I think on that point, which, which does relate to that point of government has slowed down. Um, I'm not sure I would. I'm not sure I completely agree that government has slowed down. I think government has uh, become infinitely more committed. Governments of all colours to trying to take into account a huge amount of uh, greater information, the impact assessment of a policy, or all of that stuff. So you're doing much more um, in terms of the research before you make the decision. Um, I think it's notable that at the other end of the spectrum, you have the Facebook go fast, break things model, um, and government has to operate somewhere in the middle. Um, just on, on the final point of, of AI, by the way, I think it, like AI is being used in tons of parts of government already. Um, the important bit about it for there, I think, is, is transparency. It's obviously a very different technology from simply uh, new messaging apps. But uh, what I think you do have to do is, is understand uh, where it is being used, how it is being used, and not allow it to insidiously creep in in a way just because it's sort of it, it's a quicker workaround for people to get on with stuff. And um, we've already seen lawyers getting in trouble with judges for uh, having ChatGPT write their entire argument, and it turned out to be uh, pretty ropey. Uh, I'm sure uh, that uh, no civil servant would be daft enough to think they could uh, shorten their working day by uh, using ChatGPT. Um, Alice, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, on any of the, the questions, but I wonder particularly about Giles's, do you think government should get more paper-based again? <laughs> uh, I was thinking as you were saying that about the horrific number of WhatsApps I have that I've never replied to. <laughs> um, I think it's it's a tricky one, and I think this, this starts to, to touch on Jill's question as well. Clearly, there are, I think, some efficiencies that you can have with WhatsApp. If you are, you know, somebody we spoke to was saying they found it incredibly useful if they were struggling to get a document signed off within another department that they could just text somebody in that department and be like, could you please just sign this document off? And actually, you know, there can be practical applications that can speed things up. But I do agree that there is a balancing act between the fact that policymakers have huge competing demands on their time and when you're trying to you know, reply to emails, look at your Twitter account, check your WhatsApps, take calls, all of the rest of it, um, that can have very clear implications for, for how things get done. On a sort of related note, and, and this is a response to, to Jill's point, um, in terms of the quality of, of decision making, I think there's a, a sort of couple of issues. The first is that often when you're using WhatsApp, it inherently feels like a slightly more informal thing just because of the nature of, of how you're doing that. So there is a question uh, about how that affects the kind of mentality of decisions that are being made. And there are also, again, uh, a number of practical issues. If you are trying to make substantive decisions on WhatsApp, 
and actually what you need are you know charts or detailed data tables or graphics or you're trying to kind of open a PDF and look in detail at it. That is just a lot harder uh, on WhatsApp than it might be through sort of email or, or other means. Um, and the other thing as well is that there is a real risk that you end up with multiple competing group chats who are all trying to make the same decision, uh, but not everybody is in every single one of them. And so actually trying to trace things through uh, you know, can be really difficult and can not be a particularly efficient use of, of everybody's time. So. I think it's a, very much a case of there are some real practical benefits that can come out of these systems. Ultimately, that is why they are so widely used. It's for the same reasons that all the rest of them use them in our, you know, in our daily lives. But they do have these kind of very practical implications that if, on, if they are not used correctly, could very much affect the quality of, of decision making and of policy making. Brilliant, thank you. Um, Henry, I wanted to ask if you've got any reflections, but particularly I thought on, on Simon's question perhaps about sort of, you know, sh how well is government, how good is government at adapting to new technology in general? Uh, and do you agree with Matt that we won't see civil servants or, you know, or maybe PMQs by chat GPT anytime soon? <laughs> the answer to how good government is uh, adapting to new tech is, I don't really know because I don't work in government, but probably better than newspapers. Uh, <laughs> so I shouldn't criticize. Uh, <laughs> PMQs by ChatGPT, um, I really hope not. Um, <laughs> bad enough as it is. Um, <laughs> um, just on Jill's point, though, um, which I think is an excellent question, um, on whether, whether uh, the use of WhatsApp has changed how decisions are being made. I, I was chatting to someone in the week that this all sort of became an issue during the COVID, in the sort of COVID inquiry spat. Um, and they were saying to me, they were pointing out to me that... Uh, it, COVID hit just after a period of real political turmoil. And so as a result, actually, a lot of the ministers, uh, either at the start of the pandemic or sort of deeper into the pandemic, were pretty new to government. Mm -hmm. And certainly a lot of politicians who are now entering government, uh, but who were fresh politicians, 2019 intake for, for much of the pandemic, were very new to politics. Um, and so actually, uh, you do end up with this sort of... Um, coincidence of um, a pandemic forcing a lot of communications to happen on WhatsApp in a way that they wouldn't previously have done within government and within politics more generally. And then a load of people having their first experience of government and politics and thinking, oh, right, so this is how it's done. Um, uh, so, you know, Rishi Sunak, for example, and I'm not saying he does lots of work on WhatsApp, actually, by the sounds of things, he's less like this than some other ministers, but uh, you know, almost his entire... I mean, he became a full member of the cabinet about three weeks before the uh, pandemic hit. Um, when it comes to Whitehall, um, someone else pointed out to me, you know, you can see from the, the, the download of Matt Hancock's WhatsApps to, to the Telegraph, um, you never see Mark Sedwell in them. And someone sort of asked someone about that. Mark Sedwell basically didn't use WhatsApp. Mm. Mm. Um, but Simon Case... <laughs> Uh, of whom we hear rather a lot more than Mark said for, for all sorts of reasons, uh, seem to WhatsApp quite enthusiastically and arguably slightly rashly in quite a few ways. Um, so again, there's that sort of thing about not to make everything about personality, but actually, you know, there's a lot of learnt behaviours mm. during a period of, you know, the pandemic was actually quite long uh, or long enough to entrench certain habits. So I suspect that, that Jill's right, that it has changed various aspects of government communication um, and if not more generally, how therefore decisions are made. Brilliant, thank you. I, I'm where we are at time, so I'm gonna uh, give Emily the last word. I mean, any of reflections on any of the above? I think particularly Jars's question perhaps about, um, you know, has government become even less effective? You obviously now, you work with government still from outside. How do you think that has panned out over the last few years? I mean, I'm, I'm afraid to say I would have to disagree with my learned former colleague that I don't, I, don't, I wouldn't ban WhatsApp. I, I think, you know, WhatsApp is a reflection of, of the speed of communication that, that is needed. And, and it's, but it's not, it's, it doesn't have to be WhatsApp in particular. It, it just needs to be a, a technology platform that enables us to, to have conversations. Now, obviously, we're having many conversations across Teams. Teams is very, we've not talked about that, but that's very popular in government. And, um, and yes, we're all besieged with different technology platforms, so perhaps there's a role for an aggregator uh, down the line. Um, but I think, I, I would say a couple of final remarks would be that um, I think 
ChatGPT completely understand and agree with the, the warnings. I mean, the first time I used it, it for an event I was putting together, it threw up two people that it suggested I invite that were dead. <laughs> so I sort of, I, I, I look at ChatGPT as a sort of really genius but fundamentally ignorant intern that you, you ask them to do the work but you would never consider putting that work forward without really sense checking it yourself. But I do think that there is, there is definitely usage that we could use, we can think of ways that do enable us to have uh, a kind of more informed decision-making process and, 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 and use it and speeding up some of the, the consultation in policy making, whilst not obviously, you know, as we were talking about, and I think goes to the heart of Jill's question, there is a balance ultimately to be had between we don't want to be uh, so beholden to speed that we, we lose some of the quality. And I think a lot of the civil servants I talk to bemoan actually Twitter um, as, a, as a really difficult um, problem in terms of policy making because they can see the whole argument between a journalist or a politician unfurling over minutes and they're, they're required to boil down sometimes very complex and nuanced political arguments into 280 characters and that is very difficult. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, so th there is a balance between the two, but I, I do think that government is slow, and I do think that it certainly used to be a frustration of mine that, you know, when, you, when you're on the clock, because you've got, you've got a term to do what you need to do as an elected uh, uh, politician and the, and the advisors that support them, there is a sense of urgency about, you know, elected representatives that, that perhaps isn't always with officials. Mm -hmm. And so that may play into the lack of and desire not to adopt new technology because it means changing their ways, um, etc. Brilliant, thank you. Well, I think we could have keep, kept talking for a long time, but we are on the clock as well. So I will <laughs> stop it there. Thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you for your questions, both in the room and online. Uh, you can watch this back and listen to it back on our website shortly. And um, I will just close by asking you to thank the panel. Thank you very much.